0: Yes. I forgot announced. Uh, the 29th is Amanda's uh, bridal shower. For those here, here at the church that would like to come. So Amanda Drumheller. Yeah. If you, place, yeah. I I if you didn't get uh, actually, Hamp sent that out in the email this week. If you didn't get that email, let us know. This is for Amanda Drumheller, Shirley's daughter, and. Um, That's coming up here pretty quickly, so uh, let us know if you did not get that information, okay? Welcome. Two o'clock, two o'clock. Shirley says at two o'clock on that day, okay? But again, let us know if you didn't get that email, and uh, we'll make sure we get that out to you. It's good to see you today. You're looking pretty good. Yeah, you're feeling good, right? All excited? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord, all right? Well, it is good to see you. It's good to be with you as well. Yes, Brother Danny. Yes, please. Talk to the folks. Hello, everybody online. Talk to the folks online there. let me just repeat that for those of you watching online. Brother Danny was just saying that at 9 o'clock on um, Friday, Friday morning, anybody who is available and has the time wants to come start walking just for some exercise, going to walk up the road here. Uh, I think he said that you're going to start out with push-ups, burpees, (laughs) jumping jacks, um, heavy weight lifting and all that stuff here, and then go walking 10 miles. And then that will be the start. Okay, So, no, but... uh, (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> he didn't say that. <laughs> but if you want to come join them, it would be great. Brother Danny and I were just talking about that actually earlier in the week. And what a great ministry. What a great time of fellowship that would be uh, to be able to do that. So hopefully if you have time, you'll come, come join him for that. be awesome. All right. Well, just a couple other announcements here. No youth gathering tonight. Our youth will remember that, right? No youth uh, gathering tonight. Uh, we will pick up again next week at 6 p.m. Uh, on the 23rd, next Sunday, there's the special business meeting that I've been telling you about. That's coming up. we got to talk about some things here with the facilities around uh, about here that need some upgrades. And so I need your, your uh, affirmation on that. And so um, that will be right after this service next Sunday. Okay, So if you can stick around for that, it would be greatly helpful. I'm sure there are many other things we could make by way of announcement. The only other thing I want to mention is, uh, I think I kind of touched on this last week, and that was... The joy that we had, those few of us who gathered here for the National Day of Prayer, I know it's almost impossible for everybody to gather at the same time, but I just want to say to you that if you really want to see the glory and the power of God work, uh, you really should come to be a part of the prayer times. Uh, It's just a wonderful, wonderful time. Again, there was just a few of us, and we've had these times many times over the years. In fact, we need to start our Sunday morning prayer time again. Uh, That was kind of early for a lot of people I know, but we wanted to get it out of the way uh, beginning our services. We used to meet about 840, 841 to be exact, if you remember that. And it was a time specifically to pray for the service and whatever else was on our hearts. But I just want to, again, put in a a plug for prayer. That may sound kind of ridiculous, but there are a lot of people that don't understand prayer. It's just simply having a conversation with the Lord. And uh, He talks to us through His Word. We talk to Him through prayer. And uh, we really do see... God working greatly as he develops the story of our lives and the lives of uh, people in our lives as we watch what he's doing, answering prayer and the things that they go through. And so uh, anytime we call you to pray, come be a part of that, okay? It's a wonderful, wonderful time. All right, well, speaking of prayer, let's have a word of prayer, and then uh, we'll start in our study this morning. Father, as we kind of take a breath from this last week, there have been many things that we've enjoyed greatly, but boy, what an interesting week this has been for me and for uh, many people. Uh, A lot of things here that have proven your greatness as uh, we've been witness to things that should have gone south, so to speak. Uh, But you have done marvelous things in the lives of individuals and and working with people constantly. And you just show us that if we're paying attention. We see your hand of mercy and grace continually moving in hearts. And so we we count it a joy, Father, to be a part of your work. Uh, Whether we're in full-time vocational ministry or whether we teach a Sunday school class or just help prepare the building and keep it going, just as your children in our day-to-day routine, if we're just paying attention, we see so many things that you do. And so we honor you and we worship you. and We also honor you and praise you for the challenging times. It's in those times that we find you the most quite often. And so we thank you that you're so loving and gracious to us that you will allow us to go through difficult times so that we see you more clearly. Lord, we lift up the nation of Israel right now. And uh, we have been told by you and your word that we're to pray for peace in Israel. And your people have gone through so much over the centuries. And so we're in the midst of that again. It's not a surprise. Some have asked, is this a sign of prophecy in some way uniquely? And uh, simply, I think we would just say that this is the, the tyranny of Israel that they have just had, or the plight of Israel that they have just had so many times of, of tragedy as they have neglected you even to this day as the Messiah. But so we're thankful that there's coming a day where their eyes will be opened and those whom you've called will know and see Jesus for who he is. And Lord, We long for that day and thank you that you are faithful to your people and thank you that you've grafted us in that we can be a part of your called ones and enjoy the blessing of your spirit in us. Lord, with all of that, we lift you up and we exalt you and we pray that you would hear our hearts this morning and that you would instruct us in this very uh, interesting yet very challenging subject. So I pray that you'd help ears to listen attentively and not tune out. And Lord, may this make sense. Help me be clear as I try to articulate your word as clearly as possible. We lift this up and ask in Jesus' name, amen. Alright, so title of the message this morning, The Lord Over the Demons, Lord Over the Demons. Now that's not a fun subject. A lot of people kind of uh, cower away from this subject and we'll talk about that here in just a minute. What I want to do throughout this message is talk a lot about Satan and his demons, his uh, origination if you will. i to give you a little bit of information on that and some of the workings of the demonic world. And you're going to see that in the text already, but I think it's important that we highlight this so that we come out with the same conclusion that the writer wants us to come out, the Spirit of God wants us to understand that God, through Christ Jesus himself, is the Lord over even the demonic world. And to that we give him great praise. So let's stand and read our text. This will finish up chapter 8 for us, and we'll move into chapter 9 next week. Beginning in verse 28... Matthew writes for us, when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were demon-possessed met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so extremely violent that no one could pass by that way. And they cried out, saying, what business do we have with each other, son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Now there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. The demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. And he said to them, Go. And they came out and went into the swine, and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus, and when they saw him, they implored him to leave their region. All right. Amen. You may be seated. Not the outcome that you would hope from a text like that. But let's hold that for now, and uh, we'll get into this text here more specifically and pick up the whole meaning the best we can. Uh, most of you all are old enough to remember. Uh, some of you will not, and be glad for this. But some of you all remember the movie many years ago uh, called The Exorcist. You remember that? Sadly. You remember that? Honestly, I didn't watch it because I knew there were things in there. At least I had heard enough about it that I didn't want to watch it. Uh, I did see enough of the clips or trailers or whatever you see over the years to know that um, that was not something that was going to be good for me. But I can still remember certain images that were portrayed throughout that movie. And you know, that has the uh, images have the power of doing that kind of thing for us. But yet. We watch something like that, and we kind of dismiss it as, well, that's Hollywood, and and they've done a good job. They've scared me. I got that thrill of that, and some people will say that, and, and on it goes. And there have been many other television productions, television shows that were designed just to do the very same thing that produced or portrayed the demonic world. Uh, do you remember the show Dark Shadows? Oh, yeah, there you go. Barnabas Collins. I can remember as a youngster... My mom would watch that show in the middle of the afternoon and I was terrified every time I saw him and could hear that eerie music beginning to play. And the, you remember the dark scene of the waves crashing against the rocks there? That's kind of what I remember of that. I just remember thinking, why am I watching this? It's terrible. I'm scared. And you, you know, the, that was the design of it all. And there were other shows that would just kind of, as we would use the phrase, scare the willies out of us kind of thing, and there's a sense of thrill in all of that, which is in my opinion a part of our sinfulness. Notice I said in my opinion, but I think we'll give some credibility to that as we watch the text here. Um, The truth is the world has promoted many, many things of the demonic world over the years, causing us to be fearful of the Phrase we use, not fearful of the phrase, but to use the phrase things that go bump in the night. You know, we hear things in the middle of the night and we go, what if it's or maybe it's this or maybe it's that, and it's all because we've been built in with this idea of these scary things. But most people, most people can chalk that kind of thing up to, well, you know, that's just life, this is just television, it's just a movie. Or if they do have a bad dream, they'll wake up and say, oh, well, you know, I was hot. or And thank goodness it was just a dream. And just go on about their business. And that's typically the way most people handle things that are a scary or a fearful thing in life. But the reality is, is that when we read the Bible, we see and hear and read about a lot of stories that are not make-believe. These are realities, such as what we just read. Because the Bible is a history book. It's not just from Hollywood. In fact, it's not from Hollywood at all. It is written by men who are moved by the Spirit of God over the centuries to give to us accurate historical information so that we have real understanding of what has happened. And in this case, we are at a place now in the text where this was an actual event with a literal devil, with literal demons who encountered men who created havoc in their lives. And we see that kind of thing throughout Scripture. I'll point to one here in just a little bit, and we'll see more as we get through Matthew's Gospel, and specifically in Mark's Gospel. Mark does uh, a lot of bringing up of the healing power of Jesus, and especially in the area of demonic possession. The good news, though, is as much as there is reality to the demonic world that we see here, there is also the reality of the God we just sang about, that he is far more powerful than anything Satan or his demons could do or muster up to cause problems for us. And so, yes, we praise the Lord because of that and say to ourselves and from God, really, that we don't need to be afraid of anything that the demonic world does. We don't need to be afraid of Satan because he is under the control of the Lord Jesus Christ. All right, So we need to hold on to that. But there are some things we need to learn. And we need to pay attention to them so that we're not deceived by the workings of darkness. Now let me just explain the context here a little bit before we get in, just to keep our story flowing as it has been, so that we're staying with it. When we left the Lord and his disciples, you remember that they were in the middle of the Sea of Galilee. And you remember that there was not just a little squall that came up, but this was a torrential, vehement, rainstorm and powerful storm that was causing these men to believe they were going to lose their life. You remember that they got frustrated, in a sense, at least from Mark's gospel, we read this, and asked the Lord, did he even care about them? And so they were greatly being tempted by the, the torrent of the storm there, as they were watching this thing pound them and almost literally sink their boat. But then... They were witnesses of one of the most wonderful, beautiful things that could ever happen, and that was the Lord himself standing up and in a word simply saying, Be still, and the waves in the ocean were completely still. And so it was probably somewhere about the beginning of nighttime when they started out. We were told in the gospel account that it was evening, and so now they have made their way over to the other side, which is what Matthew tells us. If you look at verse 28 again, He came to the other side into the country of the Gadarenes. Now, of course, Matthew's talking about all of the disciples, and we know that from what was previously written in our last study. But Jesus is the focus here. Now, more than likely, it's daylight. Again, as they have been traveling most of the night, I told you that it was a long distance, uh, probably about eight miles, not just across, but into the region of the Gadarenes. And I'll show you this on the map here, just in a second, they have left Capernaum, which is up in the northwestern uh, corner. In fact, let's just look at the map here real quickly here, because it helps us to see what this region is all about, or what what we need to understand. This region here, notice it says Gerasene region. It could be called the Gadarenes or the Gergesenes. It's called different names by the different gospel writers, but it's all being referred to the same area. They were in Capernaum up here. They've made their journey now across the lake. And I'm sorry you can't see my little uh, pointer on the screen there if you're watching online. But you'll notice the box in the middle. It says the drowning of the pigs and a city called Gadara. Okay? All of this region in the southeastern part is this region of the Gadarenes. Okay? So just so you know where they are. Now Matthew tells us that immediately as they get there, Jesus is met by two men coming out of the tombs. Okay? That's pretty clear. Nothing to really discuss there other than this. That they were not just any men, but they were specifically demon-possessed men. Okay? That would make it a very alarming scene. Not the kind of welcome party that you'd really want. right? You would be hoping that as you get to your neighbor's house or you're going to visit somebody to give them good news that they would join you with some cookies and some milk and some wonderful treats from that part of the country. But that was not who Jesus first encountered, at least according to Matthew in his writings. But he is encountered by two men who are very violent in their lives, so much so that they are pushed aside by the community, potentially because of their deadly work and their ability to wreak great havoc, not only on themselves but on the people who encounter them. But before we get to all of that, let's just clarify a couple of things in the text because if you've been studying the Scripture for any length of time or you read the same account in Matthew's go- excuse me, Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, you're going to see that Matthew tells us that there are two men who come out to meet Jesus, but both Mark and Luke tell us that there's only one. Some people have said, well, there you go, the Bible contradicts itself, and here's a good example. Well, no, that's not what the Bible is doing here. What we need to do is understand that before we try to make inconsistencies in the text, we need to not read into this more further or further than what we really need to read into. Because even though Mark and Luke say that only one came out, that that doesn't mean that there was only one. And we talk like this ourselves. Most likely, and I'll give you that illustration in just a second, but most likely Mark and Luke just simply focus on one of the men, which is why They use the singular pronoun he in their writings describing that particular man's actions. Probably, more than likely, because this man is being identified as the more vocal one, perhaps. Maybe the more violent of the two, giving them reason to focus on him. Perhaps Matthew, as an eyewitness to this, you remember he was one of the twelve. You remember that as we've watched the movie now. Chosen, and you should know that just from the text of Scripture if you're a student of Scripture, that Matthew had eyewitness accounts of all of this, while Luke and Mark are writing not from eyewitness accounts, but from the telling of the story to them. Okay, Now that doesn't mean that they're missing something or the Spirit of God has not given them clarity on it. It's just that Matthew probably has in mind the actual scene that happened here, that there were two that came out, but Mark and Luke are just wanting to focus on the one because that's what's most significant in this particular case. And at times, again, this is what I meant earlier, we do the same kind of thing. We might say, I saw so-and-so in the store. I haven't seen them in a long time, and it was so good to see them. And you go back and you tell your friend, your spouse, or whomever that you saw them, and you're all excited. But the reality is they were there with other people. You just didn't mention them. Because they weren't the focus of the subject at the time. And so I think it's important that we understand that. And I'm bringing this out because even though it may seem insignificant to the text, it's important for us as God's people to understand these things so that we're not thrown off when somebody comes along and says, oh, you see, there's inconsistencies in the text. We just have to think through it a little bit and help it to make sense because this is the word of the Lord. Now, let's get back to the text here because Matthew says, as he describes these men, he says that they are demon-possessed. Okay, What does that mean? What does it mean to be demon-possessed? Well, we're not having to look into this too far because we understand it just simply means they were being controlled, literally, by demons. That's what it means. But I think it's also important to understand that demon possession can take on various forms. And so we're not, we know more specifically what's happening here, but we also need to know outside of the context of what Matthew's writing is that without any regard to some kind of control, or rather without any regard to a specific kind of control, demon possession takes on a lot of different forms. In other words, there are many stories of demons at work. In Scripture. I've already alluded to that, especially when we get to Mark's Gospel eventually, we'll see that. But not all of them are the same. In other words, there are various involvements by demons in their workings in people. Except that a demon, or like in this case in particular, many demons can also be at work. In other words, sometimes it may just be one. But in cases like this, we're told that, and we'll find this out later, there are thousands of demons at work in this man's soul. Now what scripture does not tell us is the difference between being demon-possessed and demon-oppressed. Okay? So we need to think through that just a little bit. All we're told here in particular is that demons work in people and through people. That becomes pretty clear according to what the Lord is telling us. And they do that by some form of control, which can be anything of the three. It can be a spiritual control. That can be isolated by itself. It can be a mental control. It can even be a physical control. Now, usually all three of those somehow work together with their involvement here. But we see all of those three in this particular case, but they're not always that clear. But it is important that we understand that they have all the abilities of doing this. now at the extreme we see what we have here in this case that demons can cause people even to do violent acts. that is very possible not only to other people but to themselves like these men. and in job's situation particularly if we're going to use an illustration, Satan was given permission by God to take the lives of job's children. Which is what we read in that. I won't go back and read that, but if you've read the story of Job, you know that. He was given the permission to take his livestock. He was given permission to take the life of his servants, all but one. And was not allowed, however, to take Job's life. And we read that in chapter 2, verse 6. Behold, God says, he is in your power. That is God giving Satan the permission to do his evil work. Only, he said, spare his life. And so it's a beautiful text for us to understand the control that God has over Satan. Now when it comes to demonic work mentally, it's most likely that things like insanity are the work or is the work of demonic activity. Now when I'm saying these things, I want you to be careful, and I'll talk about this again in a minute, what I am not saying. Okay, so just hold on to that. But let me just be clear about what I am saying here. I am saying that demons are greatly involved in the lives of people, particularly those who are unsaved. Okay? It does not mean, however, that demons can't be involved in the life of a believer. I didn't say possessed, but I did say give pressure to or put pressure on. And even people who live according to wrong doctrines, is a good example, in fact. And God gives us record of this. In other words, people who have wrong beliefs about what God has said. Listen to what Paul says to Timothy. The Spirit explicitly says, this is chapter 4, verses verses 1 and 2, in the latter times, some will fall away from the faith. Okay, we're seeing that. We watch that happen. But watch this. Here's why. Paying attention to deceitful spirits, that's a little S, And doctrines of demons. Okay, you say, well, how do they do that? Well, Paul follows this up in verse 2 by saying, by means of hypocrisy of liars seared in their own conscience as with a branding iron. In other words, Paul is saying to Timothy, listen, son, here's how it works there would be people who come in to teach doctrine in the church who are not godly people, who put on the appearance of being godly people, who teach things that are not according to Scripture, and demons will be the infiltrators in all of that and will heighten the wrong teaching and people will believe it. And so God is simply saying through Paul, listen, when you're believing something that is not clear and correct according to my word, that is a demonic teaching that's infiltrating the life of the individual who's promoting it. Okay? Very important that we understand that. This is not just somebody's misunderstanding of the text. It can be that. But people who misunderstand the text, who are truly godly people, will come back and say, you know, we maybe need to look at this again. But a person who is unsaved will purposefully uh, bring down the meaning of the text, and that's because they're being influenced by demonic work. So again, the Lord is clear. Demons have a great involvement in lots of things. In fact, in the book of James, chapter 3, verse 13, James says this, Who among you is wise and understanding? Let him show by his good behavior and his deeds in the gentleness of wisdom. Now, I want you to listen to the words that God uses to distinguish between the soul that is being infiltrated, possessed, obsessed, or oppressed By a demonic work. Versus the person who is following God. And living for God. So there is a gentleness of wisdom there. But if you have bitter jealousy. Selfish ambition in your heart. Do not be arrogant. And so lie against the truth. This wisdom is not that which comes down from above. But is earthly natural and we would want to stop there because we wouldn't want to dare bring up to the world that there could be some spiritual involvement in this but that's not what the lord does he says demonic okay so again the lord being unafraid to tell us the truth says there is demonic involvement even in wrong teaching for where jealousy and selfish ambition exists James will go on in verse 16 there is disorder and every evil thing but the wisdom from above is first pure Then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. And the seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, again, I'm reading all of that to you so that you will see the clear delineation between the working of Satan and his ability to confuse and confound and distort when God is a God who brings peace and clarity into the middle of the situation. So we could say that when people are confused, and I've said this many times, even to myself, when we're confused over a situation and we're all up in the air about things and we're upset and we can't be reasonable about it and we lose our sensibilities, we can rest assured there's probably two things going on. One, our own sinful nature that's still at work there giving us problems. But secondly, demonic oppression. Demons love to cause chaos in our lives. Now they can't have us, and we'll talk about that more in just a second, but they can certainly affect us in negative ways. And so all of this from God's word tells us demons are involved many in many, many things in people's lives, especially when it comes to the family. Now I don't have time to go down that, uh, that path, but the family was the number one thing that God created first, Right? And so we see right from the beginning in the Garden of Eden where Satan did everything he could to begin the demise of the family. And we're seeing that over and over again. Like when husbands and wives are just at odds with each other. When they just can't get along. Demons are involved in all of that. Creating confusion and causing all kinds of problems. When children are being misled in life. Demons are involved in that. And with everything that keeps people from obeying the word. Demons are involved in that. That's what the scripture is teaching us here. Now you might be asking yourself, why do we see or experience demons like the disciples experienced? I mean, this is pretty clear in the text of scripture, but most of us would say, I've never seen demons do this kind of thing. Well, that's because demons are really good at hiding themselves. Sin wants to stay hidden. That's why it has to be exposed to the light. Demons run in the presence of light. This is a good illustration right here in this section that we're studying. And so they're really good. They have been watching humanity since the beginning of humanity. They know what man does. They know how man thinks. They know how man operates. They know what his weaknesses are. They watch you and me. They see and understand how you operate in life. They know your conversations. They can't read your mind. They're not omnipresent. Excuse me, they're not omniscient, meaning that they're all-knowing. But they certainly hear audibly what you say. They know what you get upset about. They know what bothers you. And so they just come along and they take your own sinfulness and use it against you. They can't have your soul because you belong to Jesus. But they certainly can affect you in those ways. And so biblically speaking, demons are at work in people, many people, all the time. Some in possession if you're unsaved but not for those who are saved. In fact, I would say here that at any given time, whenever that happens to be, demons are actively at work in the soul possessing an unsaved person. Okay? That's clear. That needs to be understood. And why is that? Because the unsaved soul has no spirit of God to protect them. The spirit of God does not live inside of them. There's no Holy Spirit in that person. When the Holy Spirit is present, he occupies the entire person, right? He's taken over that person, and so there's no room for the devil or his thugs. Now that's why we say a Christian can be oppressed, but they cannot be possessed, right? But in an unsaved soul, there is definitely the ability to be possessed. And that's why when a person again, when a person is born again, all things are made new. That's what the scripture teaches us, with no room for Satan. Again, there's still sin and sinful tendencies, but there's no room for his possession. Paul said in Romans 8.10, If Christ is in you, though the body is dead because of sin, yet the spirit is alive because of righteousness. Okay, So if Christ is in you, you've been born again, the Holy Spirit is there working his righteousness in you. Which is also why Paul could say two chapters earlier in Romans 6.6, that our old self was crucified with him, talking about Jesus, in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. We don't have to sin any longer. Now we do because we still are trapped in this physical body, this sinful body. We still have taintings of sin about us. But we're no longer in bondage to it. Why? Because we've been crucified with Christ. We've been set free. We've been born again, and that's why Paul can say in Galatians 5, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It's not a just a one-time event, but it is a regular event of our lives where we protect ourselves from the influences of our sinful nature that still has its residual effect on us. And so... Joyfully then, as we even sang these songs just at the beginning of the message, we can rejoice in the fact that we are totally free from the domination and the tyranny of Satan and his demons. Oppressed at times? Yes. But we are not under his constant condemnation anymore. In fact, Jesus said in John 8, If the Son makes you free, you will be what? Free indeed. Beloved, listen. You're free. Isn't that awesome? I was sitting here just looking at the cross or standing here as we were singing those songs and just thanking the Lord for his freedom that he gave to us as a result of his sacrifice. Don't you just want to take a deep breath and go, oh, man, it's done. I'm free. Yes. I'm free no longer to be bound by the sinful effects of my soul anymore. I give into it at times, but not because of any other reason that I'm just weak and I need to go back to Christ and not be saved again, but just thank him that he's paid the price. So, again, to be clear, a Christian cannot be demon-possessed, so I don't want you to hear that. But he or she can be oppressed, like when we see Jesus, for example, tempted in the wilderness. Jesus certainly was not possessed, right? But he certainly was being oppressed, as he was fully man and fully god and given of himself to the weaknesses that a flesh that the humanity the flesh of humanity takes on at times he'd been on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights without food without water and so satan comes along and oppresses him in certain ways and tempts him but he doesn't give in to that or even like paul when he has just given in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 in the beginning of the chapter there this beautiful Display of a vision that someone had. He doesn't identify who. Could be him, may not be him. But he has this amazing encounter with uh, this vision of the person or whomever. And he says this because Paul was the recipient of the knowledge. He says in verse 7, Because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, for this reason to keep me from exalting myself, there was given me a thorn in the flesh, watch this, A messenger of Satan to torment me, to keep me from exalting myself. Boy, that's an information handout, isn't it? The Apostle Paul is saying that there are times perhaps when we have been given some great blessing from the Lord and our sinful tendency will be to exalt ourselves. Look how great I am. Aren't you excited about knowing me? Aren't you blessed that you know me? I mean, that's kind of what we think, right? And God comes along and allows some difficulty and we say, oh, I'm not sure why this is happening. Well, Paul's identifying it. At least in his case. It may not be always in our case. It could just be because we're getting old and we have aches and pains. But in his case, it's to keep from being exalted. And so God literally sent a messenger of Satan to torment him, being oppressed. Back to our verse in Job, Job 2.6, So the Lord said to Satan, Behold, he is in your power, only spare his life. Job was certainly oppressed by Satan, was he not? So we should think nonetheless for us. But it wasn't the case with these poor men. They certainly were much more than oppressed. They were living miserable, horrible existences there in the tombs. In fact, Matthew tells us that. Let's get back to the text here. Matthew says these men were coming out of the tombs. Now, we don't really know for sure, but it's pretty obvious, I think, that they're, they had nowhere else to be. I mean, why would they be in the tombs? Other than that's not a place most people like to frequent. Right? Not many of us get our sandwiches from the local diner out here or Subway or Chick-fil-A and go sit in the cemetery and enjoy the day. Right? We just typically don't do that. But these men were living in the tombs. And I think it's fitting because a tomb would be the best symbol of death. Right? These men were all but dead. They basically had just a physical existence and that was it. So consumed, so overrun, so overwhelmed with Satan and his demonic horde that they were unable to live any kind of normalcy at all. We don't know for sure why they made their dwelling among the dead except that's what the writers tell us. That's where they were living. And that gives us consistency in the account. Now another thing we learn in verse 28 is that they were so extremely violent that nobody could pass by that way. Okay, So evidently they had put enough fear in the people around them that the people would completely stay out of that region which again gives us proof of what we said earlier that demons have the ability to enact some acts of violence in and through other people. And you see that even in our society today. And do you see how society, in fact, has learned to ignore demons when you and I could now easily say, no, 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 no. According to God, there is very much the involvement of demonic work in what people do. You think of the things like the murders that we see and the the heinous crimes of the mass shootings, whether it's in some public facility or some private governmental facility or at some concert. You remember that from some years ago? And heaven help us in the schools with children. And we realize that in those settings there is nothing more or nothing less, I should say, than absolute demonic possession over the souls of those who are doing the murders. And interestingly, and sadly, in my opinion, the court systems will never bring up the concept of demon possession, but they'll label people as insane, temporarily insane, and certainly we would agree with that. That is absolutely true. But we also know know what's really happening here in the life of this unsaved person is that they are very much demonically possessed. But you'll never hear that in the court system because that's not politically correct. These people, though, who are demon-possessed, live out their rage through the person, the demons do, that is, and hide themselves in the darkness of that person's sin. You see, this is how Satan hides himself from what I was saying earlier, that you even get to a setting like our, our legal system, and the legal system has to find some answer for what's caused this. And so they'll say, well, there are people who are just bad people, and you and I would say, yeah, there's none righteous, no, not one, right? We're all sinners coming into the world that way. But we would stand up and want to shout out, no, but you see, here's what God says. This is a demonically controlled person. That's why they would do that. And we know that because God speaks of his people just the opposite. And that's why I had you pay attention to the wording in passages like James. Now, I am not saying... That the murderer is just an innocent victim of possession. I'm not trying to just get them off the hook. They are a person who has given in to their sinful passions that Satan came along and sent his demons into to create and elevate their sinfulness. They've opened the door to the demons in several ways. By number one, not having the Holy Spirit in them. Right? We've already established that. That a person who is born again will not be possessed by demonic beings. but And so we would say on the other side of this, to be kept from possession, we need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. In other words, we need to be born again. We need to have the Spirit of God living in us. Secondly, and a lot of people don't understand this, but by the use of drugs. Okay, Now I'm not saying all drugs are negative, but just hear me out here. Drugs are very much a gateway to, for demonic activity. Galatians chapter 5, verse 19, helps us to see this. Paul writes to the church, church is, now the deeds of the flesh are evident. He's talking about the sinful part of humanity, which are immorality, impurity, sensuality. Now those three begin a group of threes. In this one in particular, he's talking about the sexual nature of mankind, the fleshly mind reaches out for sensual, sexual deviance. Okay, That's the natural outcome of the flesh. But look at this in verse 20. He says, idolatry, sorcery, enmities. Okay? Now in that, he's talking about the spiritual realm. You say, what's this about sorceries? Well, sorcery is the Greek word pharmakia. What does that sound like in English? Pharmacy. Pharmacy. That's exactly right. That's the place where you get your drugs. It's the use of medicines. And so the Greek word meant drugs, or in this case, Paul is specifically tying the usage of medications to witchcraft, to demonic use, to connect the understanding that when people use drugs for wrong reasons and take it too far Not under a controlled setting, there is the opening for demonic work, and that's why he translates it, or it's translated as sorcery. The idea here is that medicines then can be the gateway. You've heard of people having psychedelic hallucinations, right? You may have been one of those people in the early 60s and 70s or earlier than that. I hope that wasn't the case, but that is certainly the reality for a lot of people. And the reality from that is is that there is a medical condition that is occurring. There is no question about that. We're not denying the fact that medications have an effect on people, both good and bad, but there's also a gateway that the demons use to enter into the soul of the person. We would ask the question, how did the demons get in these guys? How did they get there? And not everybody else. Well, we don't know specifically other than what we know from what Scripture says to us. Again, which is why this word is translated the way it is. Now, thirdly, would simply be by ignoring the word of the Lord. There's many avenues for Satan and his demons to enter into a person when a person totally rejects the word of the Lord, which is what keeps the sa- the mind sane. I'm talking about the word of God in a positive sense is what keeps us sane. This is why, as believers, you and I are able to reason through things. We're able to make Conscious good decisions about things, not that we don't need help at times, but we're able to reason through things is because we are filled with the Spirit of God. And we know that from Romans 1 where Paul talks about just the opposite. He says, just as they did not see fit to acknowledge God any longer, here they are. There's the person that pushes God away. God gave them over to a depraved mind. Beloved, listen. It is God who holds the mind stable. But when a person rejects God, and God is not there in the power of the Holy Spirit, there's only one recourse, and that is eventually to turn them over to a mind that will just follow after their own sinful demise. So the demonic world is much more active in life than we give it credit. But people are really afraid to do that. In fact, if we said this in our day-to-day... If we had this scenario from Matthew's Gospel and Mark and Luke, the same one in the scenario that we're in today, these men would be labeled schizophrenic, psychopaths, probably not raised by their family correctly, right? All of these things, they were administered drugs, that's what would happen. They'd be given some drug and put in the psych ward on the seventh floor for evaluation. Now, again, I am not saying that there isn't reality to issues in people's lives that are outside the scope of demonic involvement. Okay, What I am saying is, though, there are times where we as, God, as community people label things incorrectly because there's a fear of giving credit to Satan when really that's the reality of what's happening here. And that has to happen in a lot of cultures, especially in the U.S., where we don't see the kind of demonic work that we do in other parts of the world, we have to do that because to say a person is demon-possessed just doesn't sound loving, right? We can't say that. We can't say something that's just too far out there. I mean, imagine our court system bringing a murderer up on the stage and and condemning them because they're demon-possessed. It's just not going to happen. But there is reality to it, and that's what we need to see as God's people. In fact, have you ever wondered why, like in situations like this, the Lord didn't just simply look to the disciples and say, boys, listen, here's what I need you to do. I need you to go get this leaf, this tree bark, this root, this plant, this herb, and bring it back to me, and we're going to mix it all together, and I'm going to give this guy something that will calm him down. (laughs) He doesn't do that. Why doesn't he do that? Because he wants us to understand that there is demon work at work in the lives of people. And we need to understand that. Okay, He did that because everything that comes into this man's heart is either a love for his sin, perhaps. That could be a lot of it. People shun the word of the Lord or the spirit of God is absent, however you want to say it, which is why Jesus would say some things later in John chapter 8 very similarly. And so again, Hear me when I say this. I'm not saying that all mental issues are demon possession. I'm not saying that. So don't go out of here saying that. I'm not saying that. Sometimes it is the brain. In fact, when I counsel people, a lot of times who are struggling with depressive issues, if it's severe enough, I'll ask them, have you been clinically diagnosed? Has a doctor affirmed that there is literally some problem going on? The brain is an organ. Sometimes it gets sick. Sometimes it needs help. And so we're aware of that. Sometimes people need drugs to help them. And I'm not saying a Christian should never see a counselor. I'm a huge proponent in counseling. I believe it's greatly helpful. And sometimes drugs need to help them. I'm not saying that the demons are possessing a Christian. Okay? So don't hear that. Sometimes people will ask me that. And I hope we've beaten that down well enough to know. A Christian cannot be possessed. But I am saying we've given far too little credit to the demonic world when we have issues in life and way too much credit to man's ability to fix the things that are only spiritual in nature. I think that's obvious. And so I am saying that although demons can't possess a Christian, they certainly can't oppress them. Again, of course, I hope that you're understanding all of that. And I think Jesus is showing all this to be true by giving this situation and many other situations that we'll encounter along the way. And this was such a bad scene now. Again, let's get back to the text. It was such a bad scene that Mark and Luke tell us this. Matthew doesn't say this, but the main character lived his life totally naked, totally out of his mind. Now, we would never do that. Why? Because we are in our right minds, right? But to this man, evidently this was normal. He had such a supernatural strength as well that he was able to bring harm to himself, so much so that Mark and Luke tell us that he would break the chains, he couldn't be bound by anybody. He had that kind of strength to him, often being driven out into the desert by the demons, tormented so violently that he would cut himself with stones and, and gash himself, and I'm assuming hoping to be free from the pain. If you put yourself in in this person's position, you can only imagine that there must have been that at times awareness of what was going on, but yet so tormented that they just couldn't break free from the torment. Imagine the difficulties there. I think it's pretty obvious that when we read and hear about the extreme cases of a person screaming out in agony, a person who's uncontrollable, and this happens... People will do violent things to themselves is greatly either possession or some heinous form of oppression occurring in that person. I remember many years ago, my wife and I were just newly married and the pastor who did our wedding had a son by the name of Barry. And um, his earlier days had been spent with uh, very uh, strong hallucinating drugs Uh, specifically LSD. I remember him telling us that particularly. He had worked his way through a lot of that. But one of the things that happened was, eventually we found out or heard later that um, he had committed suicide. And in the suicide note to his parents, again, whose dad was a pastor, and a dear, precious woman was his wife, uh, the suicide note said, please don't be sorrowful for me. I don't hold any of this against you. Um, But here's what he said. He said, I just couldn't take the voices in my head anymore. You see what I'm talking about? To me now, that gives credibility to what's happening here in this scene. There was a possession through the gateway of drugs, a drug that was not a controlled substance, administered by doctors, that allowed this unsaved man to let Satan come in and do his evil work. It's tragic. But it is reality. Here's something else that may rattle your cage a little bit. You know what cutting is? Cutting is a violent form of something that's hidden often by young people, especially where they will literally take a razor blade or some sharp object and they'll cut themselves. And the reason that they do that is because they're crying out for relief. In fact, we've had testimony given to us over the years of people who will do such a thing saying that it actually gives them relief to feel the pain coming out. That's how they'll refer to it. And the big controversy, of course, in that situation is not met well with parents of the child. A lot of times the parents in that case will say, "Um, you know, my child was born again when they were, were young and they would never do such a thing. This in no way could be demons. But I think we have to be honest with ourselves and and understand that this is not what a child of God would do to their body. Now again, I'm not talking about uh, anything other than with demon work there. There may be weird scenarios that a person is unstable in their life somehow. But every indication that we get in scripture is that when the spirit of God lives in that person, there is a settledness and a stability there. In fact, we're going to see at the very end of this how this situation ends for this this dear man. And so the Spirit of God who says to us our bodies are the temples of the living God would never need to do something as horrific as cutting to let the pain out when the Lord Jesus Christ is capable of dealing with any kind of pain that we have. Amen? It's a very serious situation. To cut oneself is not an act of worship to God. In fact, it's really an act of worship to Satan and that was something that happened even in the earlier days in the Old Testament as a common practice when people would be worshiping Molech. They would do horrific, violent things to themselves and to others, even human sacrifice as an act of worship, but it was not worship of the true and living God because he would never require such a thing. But he is the God of healing and the God of peace and joy and life and praise his name for that. Here's another thing, too, that we need to understand is that demons are not stupid. They are greatly intelligent. And so we should never think of them as anything but that. And we see that here. They know who Jesus is. If you look at the text here, they are very well aware of him. In fact, Mark says in Mark 5, 6, seeing Jesus from a distance, he, that's this wild man, ran up and bowed down before him. Bowed before Jesus. Luke 8, 28, seeing Jesus, he cried out and fell before him. And Matthew says this in verse 29. They cried out saying, what business do we have with each other, Son of God? Have you come here to torment us before the time? Just so you know, Son of God is a reference to Jesus as Lord. Basically saying, Lord, why are you here now? In other words, the time's not right. The time of our torment has not yet come. They're not stupid. They know that they are defeated. In fact, Mark 5, 7 says, they were shouting with a loud voice. He said, what business do we have with each other, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I implore you by God, do not torment me. And Luke 8, 28, second part of it says, I beg you, do not torment me. You think the demons don't know who Jesus is? They very well know who Jesus is. But again, this is evidence for us why we can be so settled in our hearts when the Lord Jesus lives in us. We don't have to be blown about by the things that come along in this world and torment us. Because the very God of life lives in us and is the one who is able to keep us at peace from the demonic world who knows him very well and understands they must flee from him. Their response, in fact, tells us they know that. Not only from this situation, but Luke tells us in Luke 4, While the sun was setting, all those who had any who were sick with various diseases brought them to him, and laying his hands on each of them, he was healing them. Watch this in verse 41. Demons also were coming out of many, shouting, You are the Son of God. But rebuking them, he would not allow them to speak, because they knew him to be the Christ. Imagine that scenario. Here are the people watching Jesus cast out demons. And as the demons are exiting, they're pointing to Jesus and saying, you're the son of God. Wow. And we have a hard time coming to church on Sunday morning. (laughs) They know who Jesus is. They knew his power. James 2.19 You believe that God is one, you do well. James says the demons also believe and shudder. When was the last time you and I shuddered at the name of Christ? They know their time is limited. That should be obvious by now. He has a, God has a place prepared for them. Matthew 25, the eternal fire which is prepared for the devil and his angels. I've already mentioned this. They're not all knowing. They ask here, why have you come before our time? That tells us they don't know what's really happening. They think they know. They give the impression of knowing. This is why Satan could tempt Eve in the garden by making her believe he was right, but he didn't know what was really going on. He was just trying to usurp God. And we find out in verse, in all of this that they are powerless against the Lord. They must bow to him. They must bow to him. And they will bow to him. And by the way, so will every soul bow to the Lord Jesus Christ with or without their willful heart, they will bow. And so the question is then, if Satan and the demons of this world know all about Jesus, why do they still do this? Why do they continue on in their way? Well, pretty obviously, I think it's because they honestly believe and have been so deceived themselves that they can pull this off. There is such a Loss of true and godly thinking which they were created to be not gods but they were created to be in service to the most high God in fact Satan was the most high angel ever created but fell under his own demise and his own willfulness and so deceived the rest of the demonic world they believe that they can do this so how easy it is For those demonic creatures who were created by God as angelic beings deceive humanity, who is sinful at the core. We are easy victims for them. And they are powerful in what they do. And many times people are greatly deceived, believing such things as it's okay to be married to a person of the same sex. That is a demonically influenced, given thought. And it's believed as true and natural when it is not. To believe that murder of an unborn child is okay is nothing short of demonic work. To believe it's okay to do some harm to some innocent soul just so you can have what you want or to neglect the rights of individuals and their self-interest just because of what you want. This woman that we brought up on Mother's Day who is promoting that women are now, or should be called birthing people, honestly believes that. Believes that this is what's right. That is a demonic influence, beloved. It's nothing short of it. It is demonic deception. Okay, let's get back to the text because we'll run out of time here. So we're told in verse 30 that they make a request. Matthew says there was a herd of many swine feeding at a distance from them. And the demons began to entreat him saying if you're going to cast us out send us into the herd of swine. Now Matthew doesn't say this but Mark does that there were as many as 2,000 swine or pigs. Okay? That's how large this herd was helping us to see the number of demons living inside this man. And so I love their statement. They say, if you're going to cast us out, basically really saying, because we know you're going to cast us out. You know, they weren't like asking for permission to stay. They were like, this is a done deal. So if you're going to cast us out anyway, let us go into the pigs. Because they knew that the Lord Jesus would never let this precious man stay in that condition. And so they looked for a way out. Perhaps to be free. There have been lots of thoughts as to why they wanted to go into the swine. Why not just be free to go into the atmosphere or wherever? Mark and Luke both tell us that they did not want to go. At least Mark tells us they didn't want to go back into the abyss. You think the demons don't know there's a literal hell? They're screaming at the Lord saying, Don't put us back in that place. Now tell me who in their right mind would ever want to go there by the rejecting of the Lord Jesus Christ when the demons don't even want to be there. Did you know or do you remember that in Revelation the Scriptures tell us that there are some demons that are so wicked and so vile that when the demons were unleashed on the earth after the fall in creation that there were some who were not allowed to leave by God because they were so wicked? And that even in the time of the tribulation, as heinous as that's going to be, there are going to be some demons that will never be allowed to leave even then because they're so wicked? And no wonder these guys who were released were saying, don't send us back there with those guys. Even the demons were terrified. So how tragic is it when somebody says, oh, let's go have a party in hell. Yeah, right. Now, there's some other thoughts too, is perhaps they thought that it would be better to go into the swine than anywhere else. Maybe they thought going into the pigs, the owners would hate Jesus even more. And that would do something. These are just all thoughts that people have had over the years. But amazingly, Jesus does the unthinkable and he says, go. Unthinkable because you and I would think, oh, but they're going to be free. They're going to be, they're going to be released. But we read, they came out and went into the swine and the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. Again, I've already brought up a lot of this, so just to cover some of it real quickly again. Scripture tells us that Satan and his demons are of that angelic order, the most powerful that there is, with supernatural ability made to protect and honor and worship God. And so maybe faith, Satan thought, uh, as he uh, put into these demons, that they could have some freedom from who Jesus is to go do their own thing. Um, but that just doesn't seem to be the case here. They are extremely intelligent. We've already brought that up. They are extremely strong. They have the ability to perform signs and wonders. They have great knowledge. All of these things, in fact, we're told in Scripture that even Michael, the archangel, when fighting over the body or wrestling over the body of Moses, didn't bring an accusation against Satan, but he said, The Lord rebuke you. If the archangel Michael was unwilling to go against Satan on his own power, how much more should we be uh, sensitive and careful never to bring up something someone brought up to my attention this morning after the first service. So when we're praying for something, you know, some people will say, especially in the um, charismatic church, there's a lot of "I rebuke you" kind of thing. Beloved, there is nothing you and I can do to rebuke Satan. That's right. The rebuke has to come in the power of Christ. Yeah. You and I are sinful at the core, right? The only power you and I have is Jesus himself and the power of the Spirit working in us. And so when we want something to happen we beseech the Lord Christ to do his work not from us. They can take on other forms. We've seen this. They can come in hundreds if not thousands into the soul of a person. Again what we see here. And so what I'm pointing to simply is I want you to see all of the negative parts so that you can see the glorious truth to what's happened here. The Lord Comes and with a word just simply says go and they flee. That is power. That is power that's unparalleled in the universe. And praise his name for that. Which would prove to the disciples once again that he is God. And all who heard it. And what they would hear is that even such powerful beings as demons that are no match for any human, Jesus with a spoken word simply cast out. So I think there's a lesson in all of this, if nothing else, and that is simply there's never a reason for you and I to fear Satan, right? We don't have any reason to fear him. Respect, yeah. Never believe we're ever smarter than him. We should never go down that path. We should never contend with him. But we respect him, but we never fear him. Why? Because the Lord of life is in us and he is greater than Satan. I can't say that more clearly. As you and I deal with the fears of our lives and the anxiety of our lives, could we just remember that our Lord is greater? that no matter what kind of oppression comes on us, no matter what kind of negative circumstances come to us, we need to remember we have nothing to fear, but God is able. So important that we remember that. I don't know how many conversations we have throughout the week and circumstances where fear just grips people's hearts. And if we just remember that our Lord is able, we would see mighty things. Now, just to give an answer at least to why the swine are cast into the pigs, some again have said it's because if they went into the swine, they could inhabit other peoples after the pigs were drowned. Others said the animals were created for man, and so they were going to be slaughtered anyway, and so that wasn't as big a deal as freeing the man here. But clearly to me the point is by sending the demons into the pigs would prove to the people around them as a tangible picture that Jesus actually did this. That it wasn't just some made-up thing. Because anybody can do that, right? We do that. Oh, it's just make-believe. It's some hoax. It's some some fakery, some trickery. But not when they saw 2,000 herd of swine at some distance all of a sudden go frantic at the command of Jesus to leave this guy. And then they suddenly rush down the hill and kill themselves. No, I think it was proof positive that this is the Christ and he wanted the surrounding people to see that. And sadly, the herdsmen, verse 33, run away, went into the city, reported everything, including what had happened to the demoniacs, thinking, certainly we're thinking these people get it, right? But that's not what we're told. They come back in verse 34 and do the unthinkable and say to Jesus, leave us and go away from this region. What? Why would they do that? Why in the world would anybody in their right mind see such a thing and want Jesus to leave? That's a good question. Why would anybody reject Jesus? Why would anybody reject Jesus? We don't really know exactly why. Maybe, and these are all speculations, if he could do this to a demon-possessed man and the demons themselves and the animals, what in the world could he do to me? And so maybe there was an unhealthy fear here. You know, a lot of people are afraid of what Jesus will change them into becoming. Right? How many people have said, and maybe this was you that said, I, I like my life of darkness. I like doing what I do and kind of keeping things swept under the rug. And if I give my life to Jesus, then all that's got to go away and I won't have any fun anymore. People believe that, Right? And so maybe that was the case here. Whatever it was, they wanted him to leave. Which, again, is exactly how our sin does to us. They didn't want their sin exposed. We don't want our sin exposed. They didn't want their hard heart exposed. No interest in the God man. Even being indifferent so they can feel better about themselves. Ah, you know, agnostics say there's no God. The only reason a person would say that is because they don't want to face reality. They don't want to face the truth. It's better to live in your sin, make up life the way you want it to be, let everybody be what they want to be. Because that's what they love more. John three nineteen, Jesus said this. This is the judgment. You want to know why there's judgment, Jesus says? Because light has come into the world and men love the darkness rather than the light. Because their deeds are evil. People do evil things because people love evil things. They love the darkness. You look at the world and you say, how can people do this? Well, here's the answer. People do what they do because they love the darkness. But let's not leave this man out who was healed. Look, finally, when the people came, they found the man from whom the demons had gone out, sitting down at his feet, or the feet of Jesus, clothed in what? In his right mind. Wow. What a scene. In his right mind. It really teaches us a lot. You know, when our hearts are troubled and we have those times, it's not because Jesus is not in control. Maybe he's allowing us to be in it for a time like the people of the city who told him to go away. Maybe it's a little bit of a test. And sometimes people are in a wild or confused or unstable mind because they don't know the difference and they haven't learned about God yet. Maybe that's the case. Maybe they've never been trained or taught. I believe that was the case with these men. All their lives bound by their own sin, so eventually Satan comes in and gets the foothold and completely consumes them, takes over their bodies because they didn't know about the freeing power of Jesus. You know, the most precious stories in life are the people who say, I didn't know this. I can have this. And they give their life to Christ and they live for Him all their days, never forgetting about how He freed them. You know, it's been such a beautiful thing for me over the years. I've watched people come into my office for counseling for various things and they'll come in upset, frustrated and and, and uncertain about life and where life is taking them. And that's all of us at times. And But when we start talking about Jesus and bring him into the picture. And talk about his love and his grace. It's amazing how many times I've watched people go out with a totally different mind. Amazing. I've watched couples come into my office at odds with each other. And so distracted and really not wanting to live together anymore, holding hands together, laughing and smiling. Not because of me, but because God is the God who gives people a right mind. You want a right mind? It comes through Jesus. He's the giver of the right mind. And this is proof positive. He lives in the minds of those who belong to him And he will give a stable mind, even to the most unlikely soul, like this dear man. And don't think for a second that we're not going to see him in heaven. Because Mark and Luke both tell us, that Matthew doesn't tell us, that they followed after, or he followed after Jesus. And he says, please let me come with you. Please let me come with you. Please let me come with you. And Jesus says, no, you stay here and go back into the city and tell them all that God has done for you. That's a changed heart. A person who's been so changed and affected by Jesus that they can't not be in his presence. That's the way to live. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for stories like this that are in such a few verses packed with so much truth. Lord, how you not only displayed yourself, your glory among the people of that day and changed these men or this man in particular in such a drastic way. Lord, we pray that in some mighty way you would do the same to every soul across this planet. We know that that's not going to happen just because you've already told us that. We do pray for those that you have called that you would open their minds and their hearts to see you from every soul that's across this world, that they would come to know you as Lord and Savior and follow you fully all the days of their life. Thank you, Father, that there is a life that can be lived with a sound and stable and healthy, calm, peaceful mind. And so, Lord, we thank you and we praise you that with a word you can change our minds, you can change our hearts, you can change eternity for us. I pray that in the sound of my voice that that would be the case for anyone who is listening, that they've ever never trusted you as Lord and Master, that today would be the day, and that they would see that if you can do something like this in this dear soul, then certainly you can fix the soul that's out there in such need. And so thank you for our time, we pray now in Jesus' name. Amen.